So, hello, my name's Vicky. Um, I'm going to start by asking a really deep theological, philosophical question. Has anyone here seen Who Do You Think You Are on BBC? Anyone else yet? Put your hand up if you've seen it. Great. So it's a TV show, if you don't already know, that explores like long-lost families. Um, it's the type of TV show that you watch. I used to watch it with my mum. That you watch, and it's one of those things where you're like, this is good for someone else's story, but that will never be my story. Like, I'll never know how that feels to be reunited with family. Because most of us come from families where we know our ancestors, or we don't have long-lost brothers and sisters. So part of my story is, I used to watch it and think, oh, it's great for them, but that will never happen to me, until one day last year, it, it did. Um, many of you know my story, but for those of you that don't, I became a Christian when I was 17 years old, um, and I'll give you a quick summary. So I'd never gone to church before outside of Christmas and Easter, and really not even then, um, and asking Jesus to be part of my life was the best decision that I have ever made, hands down. But it has definitely not been plain sailing since then. So I've been a Christian five and a bit years at this point. Um, life has definitely thrown some curveballs at me. But now I know that whatever is thrown at me, whatever comes, I have hope in Jesus and I have a dad that loves me. And that's the biggest difference. But I guess you could assume that um, the journey towards giving my life to Jesus was a smooth one, and I'm sorry, but you would be wrong. I'm, I was raised in a single-parent family um, with a dad that just couldn't stick around and a brother that wanted to but wasn't able to. Um, and when I became a Christian at, at 17, I had one question that a lot of us sometimes ask is, how am I supposed to relate to God as a really good father if I, all I had was a dad that couldn't stick? You see, unlike people on Who Do You Think You Are, I didn't know my ancestry on my dad's side. I didn't even know my grandparents, let alone my great-great-great-great-grandparents. I don't know my birth line because I don't know who my dad is. But to be honest, I don't think I'm the only one. I think a lot of us don't really know where we've come from. And if we did, it would change the way that we see the world and it would change the impact that we have on the world as well. Now, for those of us that know Jesus and know God as a father, we can find hope in the fact that we know that we are loved and we are enough and we are cherished. But what about the rest of us? The ones who don't know that you're literally worth dying for. I'm going to spend some time sharing some stories this morning. And there's just one thing I ask of you as I do this. If this is your first time to church ever, or maybe you've been away for years and you're coming back, or if you've been in our church for years and years and years and you've heard the Jesus story a million times, I ask that you have an open mind because we can never hear too much of the gospel. And maybe this is the, maybe this is the morning that you understand that there is a good dad who loves you after all. So I'll start with a confession. When I open the book of Matthew in the Bible... I skip over all of the bit with the genealogies and Jesus' bloodline. Does anybody else do this? Yep, thank you. We've got it on the screen. But honestly, what I've done is I've highlighted the bits that I read and then kind of put everything else as small, just being honest with you guys. Um, I imagine Matthew writing out all of these names on a piece of paper or slate or rock or whatever they used in those times, thinking, when will this all be over? Maybe he didn't. Maybe he was a lot more patient than I was. But for a very long time, I'd skip over those parts 
and get to the good juicy bits of the New Testament, the bits that I thought would actually teach me something. But after some reflection, I put myself in the shoes of Matthew. I thought, if you're going to write that out, and they didn't do it on a MacBook, they must have done everything by hand, it must be worth, worth reading, because that must have been quite boring to write. And I noticed something. Right at the start, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. As I carried on reading the names, some I recognized, some I didn't, I realized that the people who made up Jesus' bloodline were normal human beings, very much flawed, like you and me. Take David, for example. He starts off so well. He's a humble little shepherd boy. He's God's chosen one to rule the nation. He defeats Goliath. He doesn't retaliate in when King Saul fights him, and he probably had every right to. Then, after a few years, he becomes king. He's God's chosen one to rule the whole nation, yet after a, after a bit of a power play, he goes a little bit off the rails. He commits adultery, he sleeps with his friend's wife, and then to make matters worse, he gets her pregnant and tries to cover it up, resulting in his friend's death. It's a pretty quick decline going from sweet little shepherd boy to an adulterer and a murderer. Now, I've done some pretty mean things in my 23 years, but nothing quite like that. So what baffles me is why Jesus, God in human form, would come through a bloodline that featured a person like that. He's not the only one either. Jesus' great, 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 great something, Grandma Rahab, was a prostitute, and his mum was an unmarried woman, which at the time was a big no-no. If, if God is the God that we learned about at school, the one that is all-knowing and all-powerful and just judges your rights and wrongs, then why would he come through the form of a baby, through a bloodline, which, let's face it, has some pretty messed up people? Maybe it's because Jesus is the only God who is for the messed up people. I've had many conversations with people who think that all religions are the same and all gods lead to the same thing. And as much as it's nice to believe that, it's not correct. No other God comes off of the throne to meet us through a bloodline who would have otherwise been shunned for their choices. This quote tells it perfectly. Religion says, I messed up, my dad is going to kill me. Relationship says, I messed up, I need to call my dad. I saw that on Instagram, I don't know who wrote it, wrote it, it wasn't me, but it's great. Every other religion or self-help remedy tells you to do something to get to the God you need or to be the person that you want to be. But Jesus came off the throne and onto the cross to tell you that it's already been done and all you need to do is show up. Because before Jesus, God did feel unreachable. There were rituals that people had to go through just to hang out with him. People would go to the temple to worship because that's what the law of Moses told, him, told them to do. And when they got there, there was a massive veil, a big curtain, if you will, separating the normal people, like you and me, and the high priests. And normal people couldn't go behind the veil because that's where God's presence was at its strongest. It was a representation of God's holiness. And on the opposite side of that was us, the sinners, the people who didn't meet that holiness and had to do lots of things to get in that place. Imagine walking in this morning at half past ten or whenever you rocked up, and there's a massive curtain here. And on this side is the senior leadership team, and on this side is everyone else in the church. 
that wouldn't really reflect the heart of Jesus that we know now. A lot of people, including me for a long time, believe that God is all about right and wrong. And to some extent, you'd be correct. There are some obvious rights and wrongs in this world. Murder, wrong. Adultery, wrong. Putting jam on a scone before you put the cream on, wrong. (laughs) Controversial. (laughs) But there are some things that feel a lot like a gray area. Things like road rage or telling white lies. Telling someone, that outfit looks great on you when you know that it doesn't. Jesus is God in man form, and his whole purpose on this earth wasn't to condemn you for your rights and wrongs, but to justify you. He's less in the business of of saying, you're right, you're wrong, and this is right, and this is wrong, but more in the business of restoration. That's why he chose to die on the cross. I think of the cross... I find it helpful, I don't know about you. I like to think of the cross a lot like a parking ticket. If you are sitting in here, by the way, and you're thinking, I know all about the cross, but I don't know how to explain it to someone else, steal this analogy. So who here has ever received a parking ticket? I know that there are some people here that have. <laughs> Mike's friend is like, guilty. Um, so imagine, some of you might be able to imagine this more than others, that you've received yourself a parking ticket. You have technically done something wrong. It's not the worst crime in the world, but you have broken a law. If there was no justice, if there were no parking tickets, we'd have people parking anywhere. We'd block roads, we'd block driveways, we wouldn't be able to get into work, everything would go slower. Parking fines tell us what's okay and what's not okay with driving. Let's say you have to go to court to pay this fine because for whatever reason you didn't pay it when it turned up at your house. The judge is there with their gavel. Gavel? Is that right, yeah? Gavel? I said hammer earlier, and apparently that's wrong. With their gavel, ready to enforce you paying the fine. The problem is you don't have the money to pay for it. Probably should have paid it earlier, but now it's gone up to the double price, and now you ended up in court, and you can't afford this. From the judge's perspective, the fine has to be paid. There's no choice about it. But then a guy walks in, Just as you're about to pay the fine and thinking, how on earth am I going to afford this? And stressing out, he offers to pay the fine in full. He doesn't need to. It wasn't him that committed the crime. Nor did he deserve to pay it. And you have a decision to make in this moment. Let's pause here. So, you have two options. You could choose to carry on worrying that you don't have the money to pay the fine and take control into your own hands and try to work it out yourself. Or you could swallow your pride, hand over control, say thank you, and accept that the fine has been paid for. You have a choice in that moment. Pay the fine yourself, even though you don't have enough money, or hand over control to someone else. It was your ticket, your responsibility, but by law, there was a responsibility for that fine to be paid. But through the grace of someone else, someone who who you didn't even know, your, your fine is paid in full. That's the grace of God for you. Now, let's look at Jesus on the cross. God is the judge, the cross is the fine, and Jesus is the generous stranger, and we have earned ourselves a parking ticket. Maybe your fine isn't for something really bad. Maybe it's a parking ticket equivalent, a small rule break, but nothing awful. Maybe your fine is for something a bit worse, 
And you're sitting here knowing you're guilty, but not sure what to do about it. Regardless of what camp you're sitting in, we've all got some kind of fine to pay. So this is not about who's pointing out who's, who's more guilty than others. This is instead about acknowledging that as human beings, we are flawed. We say stupid stuff, we make bad decisions, and we don't love people the way that we could. And if there was a cost to everything we've ever done, I'm not sure we'd be able to pay it. But that's where Jesus steps in. So being 100% honest with you, when I was asked to share this message a couple of months back, I had an idea of how I would do it. I would give the best analogies and the best slides and the best visuals, and I was going to spend weeks, maybe months, writing a talk that would blow you all away, that would make you think, wow, this Jesus guy is amazing. I started so full of self-confidence that maybe me speaking on a stage would be me playing my part in changing the world. And maybe it is. But in my enthusiasm and my desire to transform Sheffield, I got stuck. Life got too busy and my relationship with Jesus sat too far on the back burner. And suddenly my own strength and willpower, no matter how motivated I was, wasn't enough to sustain me anymore. One night I sat in the car and cried in frustration because I couldn't see where Jesus was in the busyness of the day-to-day. I let a false sense of pride, the belief that I could do this all on my own, get in the way of asking Jesus to step in. Perhaps having pride isn't the worst crime to commit, but that version of my parking ticket got in the way of me running to Jesus. And that's why Jesus takes sin so seriously, not because he's focused on a list of rights and wrongs, but because he loves us far too much to let anything get in the way of him. So regardless of your sin, whether your parking fine is big or little, if you're holding it together really well or you're crying in the car frustrated at God, know that Jesus wants to pay your fine just because he loves you. It says in the book of Matthew, after Jesus dies on the cross, after all the genealogies finish and after we get to hear about Jesus' life, that we are told that at that moment, the moment where Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is so that we could get into his presence with nothing getting in the way. Our veil, our parking tickets, our sins, our screw-ups was the thing that stopped that from happening. But because of Jesus, there's nothing stopping us anymore. So, a summary so far. I've just gone through the gospel. There was a big veil, a curtain, if you will, separating us from God. Because God was so holy and perfect, normal people like you and me couldn't get close to him because of our sin and our metaphorical parking tickets. Jesus, who is God in human form, decides that instead of making us come up to his level, he'll come down to ours trying to do life on our own to reach a bar that we're never going to reach. Jesus pays our fine and dies on a cross, and the veil between us is torn forever. Paul, um, a guy in the Bible who did a full 180 from hating Christians to loving Jesus and his church, wrote these words, which I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. I think they're going to come up on the screen. Great. So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 13. We are not like Moses, who used a veil to hide the glory to keep the Israelites from staring at him as it faded away. Their minds were closed and hardened, for even to this day, that same veil comes over their minds when they hear the words of the former covenant. The veil has not yet been lifted for them, for it is only eliminated when one is joined to the Messiah. 
So until now, whenever the Old Testament is being read, that same blinding comes over their hearts. But the moment one turns to the Lord with an open heart, the veil is lifted and they see. Now the Lord I'm referring to is the Holy Spirit, and wherever the Lord is, there is freedom. We can now all draw close to him with the veil removed from our faces, and with no veil, we have become like mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of, of the Lord Jesus. These words were written to be read out in a church in Corinth, miles away from where Paul lives. And he's referring back to Old Testament times, before Jesus, when people would have to go through all kind of rituals to get into God's presence, because they weren't holy enough. Obviously, Paul here is talking about a veil, but I don't think he's talking about a literal veil anymore. He says, their minds were closed and hardened, for even to this day, that same veil comes over their minds, and when they hear the words of the former covenant, the veil has not yet been lifted from them. These accusations from Paul weren't him judging or condemning people for having closed or hardened minds, but acknowledging that perhaps they didn't know any different. Things worked differently in the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't torn the veil yet, so perhaps it made sense that there was a barrier between them and God. But at this point in the New Testament, Jesus has risen from the dead, and they're still living like he hasn't. All the reasons that people thought they couldn't go to God weren't there anymore, and somebody had to let them know. He's asking them to have an open mind and an open heart, just as I did at the start of this talk. It's not that he's pointing the finger and saying that the Corinthians are wrong, but instead offered them a new chance to have hope, because suddenly every reason they had not to be joined to Jesus had gone. I think we all have veils in our lives. Things that are getting in the way of us getting to God. Maybe you can't get to know God because you've got too many questions or doubts or you trust logic more than you trust faith. Maybe you can't feel like you, get to know, you can get to know God because you feel too guilty to ask for forgiveness or you don't have a place in the church. Maybe you don't think you need him, that you've done life on your own so far and you've done all right. Maybe you'd call yourself spiritual, not religious, and don't like to label. We like to put masks on in front of people, but in all of us, there is a desire to be loved that cannot be masked by anyone or anything. Even the best marriages are supposed to reflect Jesus and his church, but even they can't fully fulfill the need in us to be chosen and forgiven and loved unconditionally by our dad. What's your veil? What's your mask? What's stopping you? My mask is that I often think I can do this all on my own. That I'm a completely independent woman who doesn't need any help from anyone. So I drink fancy coffee and I sit in fancy coffee shops and I take pictures that I put on Instagram and it looks like a highlight reel. I curl my hair, I wear nice clothes, and I stand on a stage in high-heeled boots saying I can do this all on my own. But my own strength, my own pride, my belief that I don't need Jesus or anyone leads to me crying in the car, frustrated and feeling deflated. It leaves me without hope because hope in myself falls flat eventually. So I learn again, probably for the hundredth time, that I need Jesus. So, there's some things that you need to take off. I start by choosing humility. I take off the boots that I put on in the morning to make me feel bigger, when really, 
God needs to be a lot bigger than I do. I stop myself from walking in a false sense of pride. I take off the mask that I can walk this life on my own. Then I slowly allow him to peel off some of the layers that I've put up. The layers of things that define me, my success, my achievement, my independence, and the labels that I've put on myself, the things I feel guilty about, the doubts I have, the things I don't like about myself. I take off the mask that I am what I do. Then, I muster up the bravery to hand over control. Thanks, Beth. I make myself vulnerable. I reveal some of the biggest insecurities and I allow the Father to see all of my flaws, things that I am shameful about, the things that I would rather hide. I accept that he loves me just the way I am and that I'm safe with him. I take off the mask that I am not enough the way I am. And then finally, hopefully I don't knock the mic, I choose to live in the freedom that he gives. It's in this freedom, oh, that's just going to be a metaphorical hair tie because I can't do that, or the Britney mic. <laughs> it's in this freedom that we can choose to love each other unconditionally. It's in this freedom that we have hope. It's in this freedom that we can tie our hair up, get our hands dirty, and play our part in transforming Sheffield. And so we stand before our Father without a mask, without a veil between us, without insecurity or fear or without guilt or shame, but with our questions and with our doubts and with hope and freedom, knowing that we're safe in his arms. In these verses, Paul is asking them to say yes to Jesus and invite, them, invite him into their lives. He's asking them to hand over control, to accept his payment of their parking fines. He says, the moment one turns to the Lord with an open heart and the veil is lifted and they see. It's like the words to Amazing Grace that I'm sure most of us know, I once was blind but now I see. I once was hopeless but now I have hope. I once was fatherless but now I have a dad who loves me. I once was alone but now I have a family. I once feared the future but now I live in freedom. Now, the Lord I'm referring to is the Holy Spirit, and wherever the Lord is, there is freedom. Is Jesus Lord in your life? Do you want him to be? We can all draw close to him with the veil removed from our faces, and with no veil, we become like mirrors who brightly reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus. God was once a God that we couldn't get close to, let alone look like. That's what these verses are saying. They're saying that once we say yes to him and the veil is removed, that we become more like him, more loving, kinder, more joyful, full of freedom. Maybe your experience of church isn't like this. Maybe it's tainted by hurt and confusion and judgment, and maybe you haven't been accepted or loved. And on behalf of every preacher who stood on a stage, Every, every person who stood on a street and preached at you and every sermon that you've heard, I want to say I'm sorry because that does not reflect Jesus. We should be reflecting Jesus because he is kind, he is welcoming to all and he loves you unconditionally. You are loved, you are accepted, you are welcome, you are enough. Your questions and doubts are welcome here and you have a place at the table. So my prayer for you today is whatever your experience as church, of church has been up until this point, that you know Jesus is welcoming you with open arms.
I've heard people use the phrase, Jesus is the big brother that I never had. And until earlier this year, I didn't get it. A part of having a dad that wouldn't stay was losing a brother that really wanted to. My brother and I were separated when I was two years old, and we used to write letters to each other. And when I got a bit older, that stopped too. So it had been 19 years of not seeing each other and 12 years of no contact when, thanks to the gift of Facebook, we were able to get in touch with each other once again. After a process of getting to know one another, we met for the first time last year in 20 years. And earlier this year, he introduced me to the family that I never knew. The day that I met the rest of my family will be forever ingrained in my memory. It was full of uncertainty and nerves, but in every introduction and every conversation, my brother went before me. He was the first to introduce, the first to protect, the first to represent, the first to accept me, the first to love me, and the first to forgive me. If my family had an ambassador, it would have been him that day. And as I met the family that I never knew, but I'd always been a part of, he helped me to have courage to find my place. He went first, so that when I met my family on that day, I received nothing but kindness and grace. He doesn't know Jesus yet, but he sure reflected him that day. Jesus is the big brother that goes first. He walks into every situation that scares you and excites you and shows you that you're never alone. He will help you as you open up the bits of your past that you've closed firmly shut, and he commits to staying with you, giving you courage to meet the family that you never knew. The Lord's Prayer is a profound prayer for many reasons, but my favorite bit is the start. Can we get the Lord's Prayer on the screen, please? When Jesus prayed this prayer to God, he didn't start with my father or your father. He started with our father. In the moment where he's teaching the disciples to pray, he starts by inviting them into family. He acknowledges that the family of God, by starting with our It's collective, it's community. It's not good for you, but not for me. I'm sure there were people listening on who didn't believe the message or even want to hear him, yet he still invited them into family. There's a family that you can be a part of, a dad that you can know and a brother that you can relate to. Doesn't matter what bloodline you've come from, doesn't matter if you know your your family history or you never knew your dad. It doesn't matter if you've got too many masks in the way. Jesus makes the Father relatable and is inviting you into family. I think the band is there, but anyone not in the band, please come up. (laughs) If this is brand new to you and you're ready to take off the mask, hand over control and say yes to Jesus being the big brother you didn't know you had, I want to give you the chance to do just that. So I'd like to invite you all to stand if you're able. Behind me are the words that Jesus prayed. And together as a family and in response to this, we're going to say the prayer that he taught us to pray. This is a commitment to, one, choose God again, or choose him for the first time. So if you, aren't, if you aren't fully comfortable with praying those words, please don't feel any pressure. Just sit, stand with yourself and then join us for coffee afterwards. But the rest of us, if you are going to pray this for the first time, 
We're not going to get you to come to the front. We're not going to get you to raise your hand, and we're not all going to look at you. But please tell the person that you come with, that you came with, or tell me at the end. And so that you know that you're not alone, we're all going to pray this as a commitment right now. So, all together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours forever. Amen.